You are listening to Crawl Space on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you'll love Missing, which is also hosted by us. Missing started as Missing Maura Murray, and now it continues raising awareness for all missing people. And we also have an entire network of shows you'll love. Check them out at crawlspace-media.com. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. So it's a wonderful day. How are you today, Tim? It's a wonderful life, Lance, and uh, I'm doing well. And uh, we have a fantastic guest on our airwaves today. We are lucky enough to have the author of this book called Hell in the Heartland, a true story of murder and two missing girls. It is Jax Miller. Jax Miller, the astounding writer Jax Miller you said we are lucky enough we are we are lucky enough we are privileged enough to have her on she wrote this book which focuses on the events that took place on December 30th 1999 in Oklahoma 16 year old Ashley Freeman and her best friend Laura Bible they are missing the Freeman family was murdered and the house was burned down and Jax goes on this odyssey of self-discovery as she does a uh, in-cold-blood style deep dive into the case, into the family, into these people's stories. It's amazing. It really is, and I can't recommend the book enough. Uh, Lance and I both read it, so make sure to check that out. And Lance, this conversation we have is about Jax's excellent book, but we're not talking too much about the case in this conversation. The process of writing this book was kind of emotional for Jax, and uh, like you mentioned, Truman Capote, she kind of got uh, involved you know, on a personal level, and uh, she wrote an essay after the fact called The Rabbit Hole that we read, and we talk a lot about that essay in this conversation and the effects of diving deep into one single case has on somebody. Right. It's really about the byproduct of that. It's really about the residual effects that uh, I guess weren't as expected or to that level, right? Uh, The effects that this had on her definitely were not to the level she anticipated going into it. And it really opened up her eyes to a lot of other, I guess, um, it opened up her eyes to a lot of other things that were going on personally for her. And she says in sort of a joking fashion that she had to, in order to achieve happiness and sort of a, a sense of self, she had to literally go through hell in the heartland to, to, to uh, get to that place, to go through the rabbit hole. So um, tip of the cap to her for doing this. Hopefully she's got other books uh, and other essays up her sleeve. Can't wait to read anything else she has coming along. And we, know that this essay will be published in the paperback version, uh, so just keep your eyes peeled for that. Yeah, so it will be published in the American version of the paperback novel, uh, Hell in the Heartland. But pick yourself up a copy. Get them both. Get them both, and uh, like I will do. And, uh, and also, I think this conversation is really applicable to anyone who's diving deep into one case. And so really, I think that goes to 
a lot of our audience who do research, especially the Maura Murray community. I know that case is completely, um, you know, takes can take over at times. But anyone who has sort of felt like that, the walls have closed in on them while researching a case, this conversation is for you. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. Welcome back to the podcast, Jax Miller. How are you today, Jax? Hello, guys. How are you? It's so good to see you guys. It's great to see you as well. Um, it's been every time we talk, I feel like it's been far too long. I feel like it's very overdue. You're, you're so busy. You have so many projects that you work on. Uh, and that's why I think like, oh, we need to talk to Jax because she has something new coming out and she has something new coming out um, all the time. But uh, you wrote a great book called Hell in the Heartland. And that is um, a fantastic book that we're both holding up right now. Uh, Tim actually one-upped me on that. He he went out of his way to get the UK version uh, so he could have his paperback. Very uh, well-reviewed book and um, just a, a really Capote-like dive into true crime, if you will. I like Capote. Capote's my favorite. I love any comparison to Capote, but I don't think I'm nearly as good as him. <laughs> well, I haven't started reading it yet, full transparency, but I know you're an excellent writer. Um, because you sent us an article um, recently, uh, which is was sort of a little bit about your behind the scenes, um, I guess, writing of this book and your deep dive and kind of the depths uh, of yourself that it took you. Yeah. So, so something um, I talk about a lot in the book is um, my own experiences with mental health, and this was something that I felt very uncomfortable doing. I, I didn't want to put myself out there. I didn't want to be a part of the book. And I had expressed this to my publishers. Uh, I'm with, uh, I'm with Berkeley at, at Penguin Random House in the U S and um, I expressed this to them, but they, they wanted me in there. They're like, no, we want this from your point of view. We want to hear what you went through going through this and stuff like that. And it's one of them things people love it or they hate it. And it's been very mixed. Some people hate that I've inserted myself, you know, into the story. Um, and other people have, have really loved that. And, you know, saying that that's what kind of separates it from from journalism and other true crime books. So, you know, I, I, I did talk about my mental health a lot, but I, I didn't feel like it was enough to just talk about it. Um, and, and, and I do talk about it as somebody, I write about it as somebody who's been through it, but I wanted to learn more about what I was going through, why I was going through it. And so I reached out to a bunch of people. Um, and, you know, namely I, I reached out to some professors in the sociology department over at John Jay, things like this. And I said, guys, you know, um, I, I want us to open a door for this conversation. And, what I talk about, what this essay was on is vicarious trauma or secondary traumatic stress. Um, it's something that's pretty prevalent in the true crime genre. And I feel like no one's talking about it. So I decided to talk about it. And here we are. Yeah, it's amazing. The the paper that you wrote, is it a paper? What do you call this? An essay? It's an essay. Yes. It's actually going to be in the back of Hell in the Heartland, uh, the paperback, which is coming out in the spring or summer. Um, it's something that my publishers asked me to write. So uh, that's what I did. Well, that's fantastic because um, putting this in there at the back of this particular story where you get so involved 
in uh, in this particular crime, and the crime is the disappearance. It's you you'd call it a disappearance, right? Of Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. They're they're still officially missing, or have they been declared um, dead at this point? They they are officially missing. Um, Ashley was declared dead. Ooh, don't quote me. I want to say 2010. Okay. maybe 2012 um but they are officially missing and of course ashley's parents danny and kathy freeman were murdered on the night of, of either december 29th or the early morning of december 30th 1999 they were both shot to death and their trailer burned down their 16 year old daughter ashley and ashley's best friend have been missing ever since um yeah so so helen hartland is about that crime out of welch oklahoma and, and again, I, I put in there my, my own mental health experiences. And then my, my publisher says, why don't you write an essay? Let's, let's talk about this. Cause guess what? I'm not the only one. <laughs> and right. that's the bottom line. I'm not the only one. So right. that's why I do want to open up the conversation. And, and the essay is appropriately titled the rabbit hole. And we talk about this uh, proverbial rabbit hole a lot. Uh, it started for us with Maura Murray's case. Cause that was the first one. Her disappearance was the first one that we, looked into started uh digging really deep into and exploring the obsession too yeah and and everyone was calling it a rabbit hole like welcome to the rabbit hole and then we would use it to the point where that term for us was almost overused to it lost its meaning so to the point where it lost its meaning for us because it was so overused until I read your paper and that meaning came back again this essay brought that meaning back um was that title just a no-brainer for you? Yeah, for me it was a no-brainer. I, I, I always, I always joke, and I guess I overuse the word myself. I says, you know, if, if I talk to someone, and they're like, I'm in the rabbit hole. I says, well, that's where anxiety lurks. You know, anxiety lurks in the rabbit holes. And I think, you know, it, it's funny because I'm a writer through and through. I never before considered myself a true crime buff or a murderino or anything like that. I'm really just a writer who who likes telling stories that I think need to be told. And, you know, I think it's this, it's this, this generation, we see it with Michelle McNamara and I'll be gone in the dark. I recently watched the HBO series um, about her obsession with the golden state killer. Um, you know, Robert Graysmith, who, who I personally know, he wrote Zodiac and his own obsessions and how he sacrificed his own marriage to, you know, investigate the Zodiac killer. Um, I think James Renner, I, I'm not, I, I think he's talked about this quite a bit. It's just something that is, it happens so much with people who do dig and dig and dig and dig. And I think in the writing industry, especially, we kind of romanticize this idea of, of, of people stuck in these rabbit holes and, you know, the suffering artist and, you know, all, all these people who just suffer. And it's like, ooh, ah, you know, look at Michelle McNamara. And like, it, I, I don't think we should romanticize this. I think that we should talk about this. And I think that this lack of communication could help a lot of people um, who do get in these rabbit holes. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think I know why people don't talk about it. I, I think that's because it's um, uncomfortable and uh, disturbing. And I know for me personally, knowing what your essay was about, it, I, I waited until today, until the day of our interview to read it, to even broach the subject, really, essentially look at myself in the mirror. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I mean, 
I think a lot of things, I think mental health was taboo for a long time and uncomfortable and nobody talked about it. And I think we are saving lives now that we are in a place that we can talk about mental health more. Thank God. Um, and that's how I feel about this. I feel like writers, you know, especially it's a very lonely, it's, it's a world of solitude. It's a very lonely career path. And I think it's made even more lonely when we feel like we can't talk about certain things because they're uncomfortable. And that's the stigma I, I, I really strive to break. No, guys, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the solitude of being a writer. Let's talk about these rabbit holes. Let's talk about how obsessed we get and what it feels like when there's a, a killer's ghost in our room. I mean, cause that's what it feels like. You feel haunted and you feel, you know, um, suffocating sometimes so you know that's what I, I i tried to relate in hell in the heartland as well is um you know i started suffering panic attacks and, and terrible anxiety when in oklahoma researching the story and um you know i i, I did have some some mentors and, and people i worked with especially in the writing genre and several of them said like you know you got to pull out for a little bit you're getting too close you're getting too close you're getting too close and they all said that from experience and i learned that so many people have gone through this and just don't talk about it. I'm like, why the fuck aren't we talking about it? So um, that's where I'm at. Like, let's talk. <laughs> I guess the a natural question for anyone listening to this who doesn't do what you do or, or doesn't have any interest in in independent research and in, in true crime, they would probably be asking themselves, why do you do this then? What what is it that drove Michelle McNamara to be so obsessed, and what is it that drove you to complete this book? And and in in the face of this anxiety, and in the face of this uh, panic attacks, and 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 loss of sleep, and all of that, I think that there are a couple answers. I think first and foremost, you're doing something greater than yourself. That's something I didn't realize I was doing um, when I first got into Hell in the Heartland. Prior to that, I wrote in fiction. And, you know, I thought I was going to go in, write a story, get out, write the book, the end, right? And it, it doesn't, that's not how it transpired. It, it becomes, quickly, it becomes something greater than yourself. And it turned into, um, it turned from writing my book to writing their story. Do you see what I mean? Um, and it is about something greater than yourself. And that's what it became for me. And I remember, and I, I talk about this, uh, I I might have been taken out, but I did write this in the book. There was this one part where I just had enough. I was at like my wits end and I went to the airport and I'm like, that's it. I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I was in Oklahoma. I drove all the way to Arkansas. I got, I, I bought the ticket ready to get out and fly back home to Ireland where I was living at the time. And as I was sitting there, I says, you know what? Loreen and Lisa and everybody else involved in this story, they don't have this luxury. They can't walk away. So who the hell am I? So that was the main reason, I think. That's why I kept going through it. But there's another aspect to it, and I think this is relative to, to vicarious trauma, is um, in, in my mind, I've kind of convinced myself, well, this anxiety only started since I started the case. It must be because of the case. So naturally, finding answers will make this all go away. And that's what I did. I dug, I dug, I dug. And, you know, I think in a way, Michelle McNamara was like that. She had to find answers in some weird cosmic way. Finding closure would, would fix us. And of course, that's not how it works. Because even when they did make their arrest in Hell in the Heartland, it was, it still persisted. And it's something I saw it help with. 
and it was when I was seeking help, I, you know, I was, I was speaking to a, to a counselor and he was the one who told me about vicarious trauma. I had never heard of it before. I said, what the hell is that? And vicarious trauma. He's like, you know, it's, it's what you see a lot uh, with social workers, with people who work with uh, sex offenders and things like this. Um, they, they start going through the symptoms of PTSD. It's a pretty new thing when you consider PTSD has only been in the DSM, you know, since the eighties. I mean, it's a relatively new theory and, um, or, or, or a new diagnosis. And so I reached out to people, you know, to sociologists and psychologists to learn more about this. Um, and I asked them like, guys, like, is this, you know, can this extend to, to writers? If, 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 if people in law enforcement are going through this, if social workers are going through this, if people who treat sex offenders, and they said, absolutely, this could extend to anyone who works in the true crime genre. And so I started doing research. I reached out to you guys, um, especially you guys in the, in, in the podcast genre, because I knew that you guys, like me, had that one case that you hold to heart, you know, being, you know, missing Maura Murray. And that's why, you know, it wasn't like you guys weren't doing constantly one and done deals. I wanted to speak with people who had experience with that case that haunted them. Anyway, I'm babbling. Here I go. I babble all the time. <laughs> no, it's it's totally cool because it's so relatable. And it's very interesting to hear somebody say these things out loud. <laughs> this vicarious trauma is something that I feel like, let me try to put this in the right words. I feel like some people will look at it as if, the person with that vicarious trauma because they're looking into this true crime uh, incident, this, this tragedy is only looking to get sympathy for themselves. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like a lot of people look at it and say, it's not about you. It's about the victims and their families and, and stop trying to make it be about you. I feel like a lot of people kind of go down that path. Did you, did you does that make sense? Did you experience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I've heard that and, you know, I think it's easy to be on the sidelines judging the people in the ring. Do you know what I mean? Until you've been through it, you don't understand it. And if you haven't been through it, count your lucky stars. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, I also don't, I really don't give a fuck what other people say about it. I know what I went through um, and I know how real it is to other people. So even if you were to say that I'm doing it for attention or, you know, this was a, a choice, if you will. You know, I think about all the other people who have suffered with this, and this is why they're not talking about it. I don't even think it's because it's an uncomfortable subject, like you mentioned before, Tim. I think it's because of the judgment, you know, and it's the same judgment that people uh, have have professed since people started talking about mental illness. People don't want to talk about mental illness because they are judged. You know, um, people don't want to talk about their sexuality, you know, for a long time because they feel judged. And this is what needs to stop. If you have if you if you have not been through it, shut up. Is that a little too blunt? I'm sorry. (laughs) I should take it back. You know what? No, don't shut up. You know, I shouldn't say that. But just be mindful that this is somebody else's experience, even if it's not yours, even if you don't understand it. It's someone else's experience. Well, Although I'm I'm a real man and I don't have any mental issues other than I'm perhaps too masculine. So uh, it's really hard for me to relate to what you're saying. But I'm sure some listeners out there will, will be able to relate to it. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I think it is something we see all the time. I think, you know, Michelle McNamara was a prime example. And, I, you know, of course, I'm not a, a psychiatrist. I don't know if she went through vicarious trauma, but I think she got lost in those rabbit holes. Um, and like I said, they're, they're very lonely places to be. 
they're very lonely places to be. Um, it's easy to escape them um, with with drinking or drugs or you know any other means of substance abuse and addiction. Um, and this is why we should talk about it because I think a lot of people don't have to go those routes. But now you were talking a little bit about breathers or breaks, um, taking a little time off here and there. I think that's important, obviously, but I think it's also, in, in my case anyway, I would say anytime that that's happened with me, and I'll use Maura Murray's case as an, as an example, when I've dove back in, I'm deeper than I was the first time, if that makes sense. Even though I stepped away and got the breather I needed, come back and you're automatically just as deep as you were. Yeah, and you know, I, I really think it is a person by person, you know, basis. I, I think for me, I did need to seek help. I needed professional help to really help me cope with this. I'd have been, you know, and, and I was very naive going into it. Make no mistake. I went from being a fiction writer thinking I can write a true crime like that. And I think for me, I was very and I'm not saying this is everyone, me. I, I was very naive going into it because I didn't consider that, that mental aspect of it. It just, it wasn't something I considered. I kind of, I've, I've seen enough, you know, TV shows. I thought I knew what to expect. And for me, I had to seek help. And for me, I had to find what worked for me as far as breaks and balance in life. But I, I do think, you know, mental preparedness is so important. I think if, if you're new to the genre being mentally prepared, because, I think it's different to do it from a distance. And, and that's something I didn't want to do. I didn't want to sit at a desk and write about Oklahoma from New York or from Ireland. I wanted to be in the heart of it and get inside of it and be in their minds and be in their souls and learn their vernacular. And I think that being on the inside is what kind of um, made it hard for me in a way. But I do think breaks are important. I think you have to maintain balance. I think you need to look after yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, sometimes spiritually um it is so important because even though i was new to the true crime genre you have very seasoned people who go through this um you know gray smith if, if you've ever seen zodiac and his obsessions the guy just dug and dug and dug for years there's so many people i can name who've who've done this and have sacrificed so much and have suffered so much and i just say you know go in mentally prepared just prep yourself learn balance find balance so you're not working 18 hour days that's what I did I eat breathe and slept the case in Welch and um I think after it was time to go home I didn't know what to do with myself you know I was kind of still stuck in Oklahoma my mind was still stuck with the likes of Phil Welch and all that pain and murder so you have to take breaks you have to maintain stability how long were you there uh so I went back and forth for five years I went back and forth a lot. Wow. So, yeah, you probably didn't take those breaks when you were there. Well, and it, it, it wasn't even a geographical thing. It didn't matter if I was in New York. I was in it. My head was in it for five years nonstop. Nonstop. It's like, it's, and, and it nearly destroyed my marriage. I mean, it was, I was so obsessed. I was, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And I also think the silver lining, I think it's what made me, write be able to write a book I think that that lended something to a story um I think it, it helped me understand people better I think it helped me bring the girls to life on paper better and bring you to Oklahoma better um because I was so immersed in it but um again I do think that this is something we should be talking about because 
it's, 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 it's hard. And maybe for some people it's easy and that's great. I am happy for those people. I wish it came easy for me. It just didn't, it didn't come easy. Yeah. I'm not sure who it comes easy for. I don't know. I don't know who would embark on a journey like that and go down the rabbit hole, come out the other side and say, ah, oh, it wasn't so bad. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who would, uh, I mean, other than me, cause I'm such a, you know, stone cold son of a gun. <laughs> when you say balance, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I think it's different for everyone. I think everyone has to find themselves fine. You know, and I largely found myself during this story. I, I found my, my limitations pretty quick. I found, uh, you know, what I was capable, my, my uh, capabilities. Uh, for me, balance is taking time out um, to just be, to sit in silence, to meditate, to distract myself from anything that's not the case. You know, whereas before I was working literally from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I eat like, like when I said this, is all I did, it was all I did. It was all I talked about. And that's just, it's not even that case. You have to understand that that's just the person I am. In the book, I, I flippantly say I have my father's Asperger's. And, you know, I say that because um, I'm so focused. Like once I, I zone in on something, that's it. I'm, I'm, I take it with my teeth and I don't let go. And it's a blessing and it's a curse. So I had to like rewire how my brain worked and just take time to be still, take time to exercise, take time to to um to meditate uh, or pray you know I, again i think it's different for every person but i think it's important just to make sure that that's not the only thing you're doing make sure that this case or whatever you're writing or working on is not the only thing you're doing because you know in time it, it can affect you negatively absolutely and in your essay you uh, quoted that that very famous quote by uh, Nietzsche that says, uh, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And then it's the very famous follow-up, if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. Uh, that's something, I mean, people hear that saying all the time. It's so true with this. Why do you think that that notion is romanticized? Uh, because... Graysmith in Zodiac is sort of a romantic character. He's become a romantic character, somebody who, against all training that he had or didn't have, dug so deep into one of the most famous serial killers in American history, maybe in world history, the Zodiac Killer. It's a very romantic image. And what you've done is a very romantic image, someone who almost lost themselves. Why Why do you think that that, that saying about you know, coming so close to becoming a monster is a romantic notion. See, for me, I, I, I put the quote in its entirety in there because I didn't want it to be taken out of context. I never thought of myself as turning into a monster by any means, but it was more of the latter that I really took to heart. And I remember when I first started Helen Hartland, before I even went out to Oklahoma, when I first started like the first page, just kind of on a whim, just kind of getting a feel for it, I put that quote there. And I remember taking that because I'm like, it doesn't apply to me. It's, it's silly, you know. And it wasn't until afterwards I, I found like, oh, my God, now I get that. And what I tried to do with Hell in the Heartland was instead of romanticize it, I really tried to show the grittiness of it. Like, like this is not fun. This is not glamorous. <laughs> this is gritty. Um, and that's what it was. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very open painfully open because like I said I wasn't comfortable putting myself out there but I was very open about how sick I became physically 
and the physical toll it took on me. And it wasn't easy to write that stuff. In fact, like I was like cringing at myself. I'm like, I don't want people to read this about me. I don't want, like, it's embarrassing. It's, it, you know, it's uncomfortable. And my publishers are like, no, let's keep it. Let's keep it. Let's keep it. And um, in a way I'm glad I did because I, I think, you know, I've, I've gotten a few letters of people who've written me like, wow, I go through anxiety. I have panic attacks as well. Um, I've been sick like that. And reading that, you know, really helped me to know that somebody else out there understands it. And that's so rewarding. I mean, I, I can't even explain that feeling, but it's because I'm gritty and I'm like hardcore about it. And that quote going back to, you know, if you stare into the abyss long enough, it does look back at you. I, I found that to be true. And I, I, I asked myself, I think he's talking about a damn rabbit hole. <laughs> that's it. I think he's talking about a damn rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to ask a specific question about that quote, too, because the, the end of it is the abyss will gaze back into you. And that's different from gazing at you or looking at you. That's into you. Can you um, tell me what that means to you? To me, and this is just personal, um, part of vicarious trauma is facing PTSD. And I have a very vivid imagination. This is what makes me a writer. And I remember having nightmares. I mean, nightmares, my God, of Laura and Ashley's killer on top of them and looking into Phil Welch's eyes, you know, which I talk about a lot in the book. Everybody talks about his eyes. And, you know, I, I, I had seen their killer in real life. I, I, I did get to, um, you know, sit in a room with Ronnie Busick. It does look back at you. That darkness looks back at you. It has a way of doing that. And if you haven't been through it, it's so hard to explain. But when you're looking at this darkness for so long, it does take a toll on you. It does get a piece of your soul from you. It, it takes its pound of flesh. That's why it was so important. And I try to emphasize this in the book that I had to remember the love in Oklahoma Lorene's love for her daughter, Lisa's love for her cousin, the light that Laura and Ashley was. And it's hard to see sometimes. It's hard to hang on to that light when you have nightmares or when you're having flashbacks that don't belong to you or when you're having a panic attack when you're listening to a victim tell a harrowing, you know, survival tale. Um, it's easy to lose sight of the goodness. And that's why I think it's important to maintain balance so you can keep that part about you. But that's what I think it means when it looks back into, you know, when, when it, it gets in you, it, it takes it takes a piece of you. And how do you think like uh, media affects people's perception of this particular job? Is it is it glorified? Because, I mean, you you are absolutely accurate. Your essay is gritty and hell in the heartland is is damn gritty. Uh, you would never <laughs> after reading that book, you would never I wouldn't. I don't know anyone who would say like, yeah, this sounds like something I want to, you know, get get really involved in. You know, it's it's almost a cautionary tale, to be honest. And, um, but how do you how do if something like this was made into a movie or a TV series, I don't know if they'd be able to capture how gritty it, uh, the reality of it is. And I guess my long winded question is, how can media like television really accurately portray something that's so gritty and dirty and difficult good writing <laughs> there you go i mean like if you want to do a tv show or i mean it boils down a good writing um but you know i i do think that the media can really help you know i think when you see these movies like zodiac and 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 
I'm trying, I'm having a brain fart right now, these other true crime series, and they show you these romanticized heroes, but it's not like that even for the heroes that are being portrayed. Like, you know, I, I don't think it was so sweet as Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, sitting on his desk with a pen. I think, you know, Gray Smith went through some really real shit, <laughs> like some real gritty stuff. Um, I know his paranoia c- came to light in real life. That's something that, that we all talked about was the paranoia that does come with the territory, I think. Um, I think that instead of romanticizing it, we should be talking about, you know, where there's help available, how there's help available. And I'm still trying to find these things out for myself. So don't look to me. But, um, you know, I, I think it would have been great if they showed Robert Graysmith and marriage counseling at the end of that movie to kind of show you the real effects of it. But I mean, let's face it, the true crime audience is big. Um, they're, they, they spend a lot of money and they don't want to see that. They want the, to see other aspects of true crime not that so that's why you know i think it's important for the creators of true crime because like because like i said i don't consider myself a true crime buff per se i just i write and that's why i think that this is something you see more with the creators as opposed to the audiences i think that the audiences are are, you know a a separate thing from this um i'm not saying that true you know i don't think and maybe i'm wrong I, i haven't looked into it but true crime audiences aren't necessarily paranoid and going through vicarious trauma or maybe they are but i'm just speaking um you know like when i write that essay i'm just speaking about true crime creators you know content creators right and uh and i think you're right and but but i would say i do think um people in the audience can relate um because if they have researched a case they've gone down that rabbit hole and maybe experienced to some degree um that sort of uh uneasiness yeah i think i mentioned that in the essay i think i think it does extend to you know web sleuths and and people you know armchair detectives they call themselves um absolutely you know and when I was talking to the professor, I cannot say her name. My goodness, it's I, I, it's Jeglik or Yeglik, Heglik. Um, when I was speaking to her, she was, you know, she was saying that it could extend to, to anyone in the true crime genre. And, and that's why it's important that we talk about this. And I think that there's such a community in the true crime community. It's in, in every sense of the word, it is a community. And I've heard a lot about, about murderinos, how they're very supportive, you know, especially, you know, with women, how, how they're very supportive in that community. And, um, and I think that's fabulous. And I would love to see that sense of community, especially with writers and, and you know, people who tend to work in solitude, like writers work in solitude, a lot of podcasters, they work alone. Um, and I feel like, especially in the writing community, we don't always have that sense of community and security. And that's why I think it's important to bring it up with its, with its creators. And, you know, especially now that we're talking about Michelle McNamara and, and things like this, now it's, it's so important to continue talking about this. Yeah, for sure. And we just recently learned of this term that's called Munchausen by Internet. Have you heard of Munchausen by Internet? No, (laughs) of course, I've heard of of Munchausen's and Munchausen's by proxy, but I haven't I haven't heard of that. Munchausen by Internet is very simply put somebody who is healthy, who is online pretending to not be healthy to gain sympathy. And I feel like there is an element of that with some of the true crime Internet sleuths At, at some point. I don't know why, but they'll reach a point where it becomes it, it becomes about it becomes about their uh, personal well being, and we've experienced that kind of kind of uh, like they're affected by the case that they're investigating. Like, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, personally speaking, we have people who have claimed to be affected by a certain case that they've been looking into and and they've blamed us for that. <laughs> and which is which is interesting. Um but the the Munchausen by internet isn't specifically geared towards true crime. Uh when we learned about this though, all of a sudden all these like lights went off in my head and I was and I started realizing there are some people who are experiencing that and instead of being uh upset that we're being blamed for something there really should be a call to action for these people to um try to seek out some sort of assistance with this because it it is a very volatile and dangerous situation because you can say anything you want online and you can blame anybody you want online for anything um Maybe I'm just excited that I learned a new term and I can apply it to something, but um, I didn't know if you had heard about it, and and I just was curious on your thoughts. No, I have not, and that's something I'll definitely talk to my people about because that's interesting to me. But again, um, maybe that's something that needs to be talked about, too. I don't know much. I mean, I, I know enough about Munchausen's. Actually, my mother had Munchausen, so I'm very familiar with it. No, I had not heard that. And like, I look at my mother and it's like, you know, I wish she had help. (laughs) I wish she had help. So maybe we should be extending help to these people and, you know, not judge them, you know, and offer a sense of community. Now, Jax, you've also had a pretty remarkable body transformation that you are public about, right? You, you, um, you've, you, you, you've lost a weight and you are healthier and you have, you've posted this and, and you've, yeah. And you have anniversaries on when you started and it's a really amazing journey to, to watch. And I'm wondering how important that was to you with your, with, with your mental health as well, especially balancing the book and that subject matter. Well, you know what, that's what it is. I think as I started treating my mind, the healthier I got, it really was you know, I, as, as I started getting help to, you know, for my anxiety and, 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 you know, trying to, to come to terms with the book and, you know, I not blame myself for the case not being solved, which I tend to do. I take things on too heavily. Um, I think the more I tended to my mental health, the physical health followed. And around the time coronavirus started, maybe a little bit before I started Noom and it's like, I lost, let's see, almost 40 pounds. Um, I cut off my hair. I don't know why. I just, I felt like a new person after Oklahoma. I just felt like, you know, I needed a change to, to match my, my mental health journey. Um, I think more transformative is my mental health. I have changed so much for the better because of Oklahoma, even though it was like one of the hardest things ever. Um, my anxiety has gone down. My, 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 my negative self-talk has gone down. <clears throat> I'm in general, more happy, more confident and things like this. So I really wish sometimes people could see inside my brain. So I'm like the transformations actually in my brain, my, my body and my skin and everything else is just following that. And uh, I'm very thankful, you know, because mental health is, it's an issue in my family. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, mental health issues affected my mother directly to her death my grandmother and so on and so on. I talk about this in the book as well. Um, so I have to give it a fighting chance and I'm not cured. I'm not a hundred percent. I'll never, you know, this is something I'll live with the rest of my life, but I can just give it a fighting chance. I'm as healthy as I've ever been. I'm 35 years old. I'm, I feel the most in shape I've ever been the healthiest, no, no toxins, no cigarettes, 
alcohol, anything. I'm just totally clean and loving life as I cough. In your paper, you uh, write a little bit about empathy and, of course, you write a little bit about anxiety, and we talked a little bit about that today. Can you discuss um, what you learned about the connection between empathy and anxiety? So a lot of the essay was actually citing what I learned from professionals who are in a place to talk about it. Cause I, and you know, full disclosure, I should have said this in the beginning. I'm not a professional. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm not a psychologist or a doctor or a psychologist or anything like that. So um, I had to reach out to experts who could, you know, speak on this for me. And this is what I did in the essay. So I cited them and uh, they gave me journals to look at, you know, a lot of academic journals and, and studies and what they found through these studies, and I don't have them before me, so I can't tell you which ones they are, but I, you know, if you, if you want them, I have them. Um, there was uh, studies on, on people who worked with sex offenders, and they, they, they worked with reoccurring sex offenders, and more than 50% of them had symptoms of vicarious trauma, symptoms of PTSD. They were having flashbacks, paranoia, things like this. And in this study they said that um, empathy is, is, is the biggest, it seemed to be like the biggest marker. And I don't know if these terms are correct. Forgive me. Like I said, I'm not the professional, but they said that empathy was a a major role in this, that people who were more empathetic and really tried to put themselves in the position of the people they're working with or the people that they offended tended to suffer the worst. Um, It's my job as a writer to try and understand what people are telling me it's my job to try to understand so i can convey to readers what lorene bible's going through what that killer went through what the victims went through you know that's literally my job and i never really thought of myself as an empathetic person but i am a person who has to put myself in other people's shoes constantly for writing and i think that that's what contributed greatly to um me experiencing vicarious trauma yeah so that's kind of natural then in the way you described it, um, as a writer, uh, you have to use your empathy um, to put yourself in other people's shoes. So then, especially when you're doing true crime, then the anxiety, I guess, is part of the equation. It kind of has to be um, if the equation's correct and if you have empathy at all. Um, and I would say that probably extends to uh, true crime podcasters for sure, too, especially if they're doing this um, mostly alone. Um, and speak with victims or victims' families and things like that, that's something to know. Um, if you're out there and you do a podcast, you're thinking about getting into one, that probably comes with the territory too. And something else that was noted in these studies, because then um, uh, uh, there was another university that did a study uh, with vicarious trauma with attorneys and lawyers, and they found that compared to other people who work directly with victims and stuff, um, not only do they have these high caseloads, but a lot of it was just that it goes unchecked. A lot of these attorneys and, and, and people don't have anyone to really go to when they face stuff like this. Whereas, you know, people like the, the uh, therapists who were working with the sex offenders, they had other therapists and, and people to turn to in light, you know, with, with their symptoms and stuff. And I think with being a writer, I don't have anyone to answer to, you know, so it went unchecked. I, I also think it's different for someone who's trained in law enforcement, you know, someone who's trained in law enforcement can, can, and can shut off or they're at least trained to kind of keep that emotional distance. You know, um, I don't have that training and I'm really not meant to, I'm supposed to be closing that gap between, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be sharing every emotion. I'm supposed to be closing the gap. There's not supposed to be distance between my mind and their minds. We have to think like one to get this book off, you know, the ground. Um, so I think it's different than, 
you know, a lot of people who are trained or, or, or are expected to have some kind of professional distance. Um, I'm not supposed to have that professional distance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, I know for, for me, um, it, I, I do have empathy obviously. Um, but, uh, I, I do have the ability to push things down pretty far, um, until they sort of rear their ugly head when I'm not expecting or not wanting it to. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I sort of took when I read your, your essay too. Um, it's that balance. I got to find, I know I have to be better at finding that balance myself because, uh, I have experienced some of what you wrote about and it's disturbing. Well, tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about you for a minute, Tim. Well, I, I want to add on that, and then we can get right to it. The times we live in right now during pandemics and quarantines and just the climate of the world, I mean, there's a lot of people who just don't want to communicate. They're not able to communicate, and a lot of people are just getting used to being alone and and working remotely and creating, like, a brand-new schedule. So some of that stuff that you're talking about, Tim, like pushing things down, there's probably stuff that— you're pushing down and, and someone else is and they're relating to, to what you're saying and not even realizing that they're pushing it down because it's what you have to do. We, we have to quarantine. We ha- we're, we're, it's not our fault. We're in a pandemic. Um, we have to cover our face when we go outside. I mean, we, people can't even see our faces. So you're pushing that down as well. And I don't, think, I don't think a lot of people realize the psychological impact that that will have a couple of years, maybe a few months or somewhere down the road. I know it's true. And uh, yeah, so more stress kind of now than ever, it seems like because of the pandemic. And it's like, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll just put my head down and work and then deal with it after the pandemic. Um, but we don't even know when that is. <laughs> um, so I, I, one thing that reminded personally, let me tell a quick personal story is something that came to mind when I was reading your, um, your essay, Jax. And, uh, I it was a moment where I where I got where I really blew up and got got angry. Uh, this is going back years ago. Um, my mom was uh, terminally ill with cancer, and there was a Christmas um, that we celebrated with some family. And there was a Yankee swap, is what we call it up here in the north, which is sort of like a secret Santa. But everyone opens a gift. Everyone who brings a gift opens someone different, someone a different gift, and then you get to trade if you want. So my mom did that. She traded. She picked the gift that she wanted. And then um, my cousin's husband uh, <laughs> had a later pick, and he took it from her. <laughs> and uh, and I, I blew my top. I'll tell you what. I, I had to leave. I mean, I, I, we almost, there was almost a fight on Christmas Eve because of something completely ridiculous now that I kind of talk about it, but I was so emotionally entangled in, obviously in my mom, she was sick. This was the last Christmas she had. So yeah, it, it came out. Why the hell would he take the gift? Jesus. Oh, I don't forgive him for that. That was, that was rude, but that was, that but was still. incredibly rude, <laughs> but I should have dealt with it uh, much better. I mean, maybe, 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 uh, maybe that was exactly how it should have been dealt with. Anger is a very useful tool. It totally is. I forgot who um, said that. I just heard this. 
yesterday. I can't remember who it was from, but I was listening to something and they had a, um, a psychologist on and and they said uh, something, you know, to the effect of don't discount anger. If you're if, if you're in a bad place and, and the thing that gets you out of that bad place mentally is an, an outburst or some sort of um you know, punch a wall or whatever. If it gets you out of it, obviously don't break your hand punching a wall, but don't discount anger. Anger is a, a very, like you said, it's a great tool. Anger is is when something is wrong. Something is wrong and you're trying to fix it quickly. That's what it is. Something's not right emotionally or, or otherwise and you're trying to fix it quick. And that's what that is. Well, I would say that is um, a very dangerous uh, tool to have at your disposal um, when you have a podcast and when you have, you know, in in the context of reporting uh, facts about crime, I would say that's a pretty dangerous tool to have in your arsenal. You know, that's actually something that a lot of people talk about, um, especially in the true crime genre. And and I've I've spoken with with hosts and other writers who are like, I hate this guy. I wanted to kill him. I want to reach across the room and kill him. And you know, I guess I'm very blessed. I've never felt that anger where I wanted to like kill someone else. I mean, maybe my husband once in a while, but like, you know, as far as, as true crime goes, but I know that that's another, you know, emotion that does come out in true crime with a lot of people is anger, especially when there's injustice. And, you know, um, for me, I, I get very angry and frustrated with the case in hell in the heartland. Um, but I've also learned to suppress that. And that was something else I learned in Oklahoma. But, um, you know, I think it's just our mind's way of saying something's something's not right and needs to be fixed. And uh, what an interesting conversation this has turned into talking about anger as this wild weapon, right? This uh, this thing that you have to tame. And if it's tamed and you can utilize it and you can control it, then it can be very useful. But if you can't, then it's insanely dangerous. You know, I'm I'm gonna go back to Loreen. I'm I, I'm sure you guys remember Loreen Bible. The, oh yeah, the mother, the mother of Laura. And I remember the, when I first went to Oklahoma, I had a very different mindset going in than than the mindset I did coming out. And I remember going in there, gun ho, I'm gonna kill every mother effer, and I'm gonna crucify that one and f this one. And that's just you know, it's a little bit of my New York brash, I suppose. I get a little you know hot headed. Um, but something I learned from Loreen Bible specifically was wait stay cool and I thought to myself if this woman's not angry and she's angry I'm sure but if this woman's not expressing her anger who am I to be doing it who am I to be you know f this one and f that one when she's cool and collected and she so taught me how to control that anger and rein it in and that frustration and and it's and it's justified anger there you know what the cops did and didn't do the killers there's so much you know uh anger that needs to be there, but she just doesn't express it. And that's the difference. I think we're all out to have anger, but it's about how we react. Do we go off on, on the cousin who's being a jerk or do we hold it in and just have a nice conversation about, you know, about it later? Um, it's about how you react. That's the difference between justifiable and unjustifiable anger. I feel like. Really cool. Um, so, you know, Robert Graysmith and why hasn't he come on crawl space? <laughs> he, he, uh, he reviewed my book. And, um, you know, that was really amazing. And, and I, I asked for him specifically because we have the same publisher. And I said to my I said to my editor, I'm like, dude, get me, get me Robert Graysmith. And he wrote this beautiful letter. And it was just like I cried. I, I, I literally cried because, you know, I, I think in the back of your head, 
as a writer, and it's not just with Helen Hartland, this is any book you're writing, whether it's fiction or not, you're filled with self-doubt. What if this is for nothing? This is, I suck. This is bullshit. I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting these years. I'm wasting my energy. And then you get something like that. And I, I, I remember crying because it was the first review I got. And I just like, oh my God, <laughs> it wasn't all for nothing, I guess, because somebody liked it. <laughs> and um, that was, that was amazing, actually. That was really cool. And he's just Shoot. really nice. <laughs> oh, 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 so he is really nice. He's really nice. Oh, why is he not supposed to be nice? No, no, I was just curious. I mean, no, we we actually we have guest chairs open uh, for for nice people actually. Oh, future crawl space episodes. Yeah. Well, let me talk to my people. You know, I I Robert Graysmith. Uh, you know, he he really needs us more than more than we need him. So obviously, <laughs> yeah. So you know, we're we're doing him a favor here, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby Graysmith. Doors open. Bobby. Bobby hey, Bobby G. boy, come here. <laughs> I'm sure he'd love that too. (laughs) No, I, you know, I've been very fortunate, but you know, again, I I think he's, I think he and I are a little bit kindred spirits because we don't really consider ourselves true crime enthusiasts per se, as much as we are writers where we are writers. And, you know, I think that that's something that we get. Whereas like Michelle McNamara, she was a true crime person. You know, I'm not really a true crime person. And it's not that I, I'm not, familiar with true crime or i don't know what's out there i'm not, I'm not naive either um i'm, I'm well read in true crime uh I, at least i tell myself but um you know me and robert graysmith we're just we're writers we you know i i always say if laura and ashley's story took place on mars i'd be writing a, a sci-fi instead of a true crime i mean i just i liked the story at first and that's what i went in going i, I went in with that attitude i'm gonna go in and write this amazing story and you know i came out a different woman but we're storytellers. Oh, for sure. You you came out a better person, um, as you said. You said that it this is uh, the experience that made you a better person, and it's really interesting that you had to go through this hell in the heartland. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I get the title now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't even get the title because I didn't pick it. So, but I did think that afterwards. I'm like, wow, this does talk about my own hell in the heartland. Yeah. Um, but I, I did not pick the title, the original title for the book. And the book came first. It, it, it came before the show was uh, the, the title um, By the Dawn's Early Light. That was the original title. That's a and great title. The French, the French translation stayed truer to that. They did the Lights of Dawn, but they don't have the context of the national anthem like we do. I, I wanted something very American. And since the girls went missing by dawn, you know, we I, I liked By the Dawn's Early Light. But um who knows? Maybe we haven't seen the end of By the Dawn's Early Light. We'll see. All right. Maybe it's it's destined that that title is for something. Something. Maybe when you write Tim and 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 myself write our uh, biography, you can title it By the Dawn. No, Early Light. actually, I'm saving it for when me and Bobby have our own podcast. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, we'll definitely get them on then <laughs> uh, with you. Hopefully, you'll be my first guest. Well, riding your Perfect. riding your coattails. <laughs> Good old Bobby boy. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jax, for uh, for joining us today and discussing this um, topic. Uh, your your writing and uh, you know, really, this is opening the conversation to this uncomfortable topic. Thank you, because I was actually going to say, you know, it's it's not easy talking about this, and I, I think a lot of people probably feel the same way. So, thank you for helping break this stigma a little bit, and at least just you know, putting it out there a bit. And you know, I hope if if anyone out there listening has gone through this, you know, reach out to someone. 
give yourself a break and love baby love that's what it's about